Good morning, good morning. If you would, turn in your Bible today as we get started. We're going to read a couple verses to begin our service. We'll read these together and um, read them out loud. Look at Psalm number 51. Psalm number 51. We're going to read a couple verses together this morning that kind of go along with our message for the day. Kind of call our hearts to worship the Lord. So if you would, look at Psalm number 51. And look at me, what at verses 10 through 12. I'll read verses 10 and 11, and we'll all read verse 12 together. We'll open in prayer, and our choir will sing this morning. Give me what, Psalm 51, verse number 10. It says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Let's all read together. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. And uphold me with thy free spirit. Let's ask the Lord to help us this morning. God, thank you for bringing us together today and for giving us the opportunity to worship you. And giving us the opportunity to call on you. We ask that you would uh, settle our hearts and our minds in this moment. There are many um, cares. There are many different concerns that we have about our own lives individually, about lives of those that, uh, people that we love. And uh, we we just ask that you would uh, ensure us this morning, reassure us that you have those cares as well, uh, that you have taken them on yourself and that we can trust you with them. Help us to, in our minds, look to you today, to seek to glorify you uh, by how we sing, by how we pray, how we speak to you, our Father, our God, and then how we handle your word. And we ask that you would guide and direct us, that you would teach us, uh, that you would fill us with your spirit and help us to understand what it is that you're trying to teach us and how you're trying to move in us in our lives. Uh, We thank you for uh, these people that have uh, gathered themselves together this morning for a moment of our week to point our hearts and our minds toward you, to center ourselves around you. Uh, Thank you for this church and for the people that uh, make it up. We ask that you'd uh, bless, that you would bless physically, but that you would bless spiritually, that you would give us uh, deep and meaningful relationships to one another because you have given us a relationship with our Father through Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, Bless these things today. Glorify yourself through us and in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Find this morning, if you would, in your Bible, Matthew chapter number 11. And as you find your place there, you can also have out your bulletin for today and just to draw your attention to a few things. But finding your place there in Matthew chapter 11 for today. And if you're visiting with us, we're glad that you're here, whatever's brought you our way. And uh, a couple things, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one there somewhere in a seat near and in front of you. And uh, we'd be glad for you to use that today. If you don't have a Bible that you uh, call your own, then uh, we'd love for you to take that with you. And that's our gift to you this morning. And then back on the Welcome Center, there's a gift bag for you and Uh, Just something from our church to you to thank you for being with us today, and we're thankful that you're here. If you would, look at Matthew chapter number 11, and uh, also there 
in your bulletin. You see some things coming up. You have this evening, we have kids clubs and our adult class all together in the auditorium wrapping up our uh, study through uh, evangelism, giving the gospel. Uh, I think tonight there's even a, a kids a fall activity there in the kids clubs, and so they don't want to miss that. That's tonight at 5 o'clock. Uh, teen activities mentioned there. There's a seniors fellowship coming up. And uh, I don't know exactly what hobo soup is, but I guess that is what you are having at the Seniors Fellowship. And they're asking uh, those that come. It's at 5.30 on Wednesday evening, November 9th. If you plan to attend, you bring one can of vegetables and the meat's going to be provided. And then you will make a large soup together. I hear that it is good. Um, And uh, I'm going to have to come down and judge that for myself on November 9th. Uh, I will pick out the meat. I'm not a vegetable person, but uh, no, I'm just kidding. You bring a can of vegetables. Uh, the fellowship will conclude right before the midweek service that evening. So if you would, uh, hopefully plan to be a part of that. Uh, ladies meeting, and then on uh, the third week there of November, uh, the 22nd, our midweek service will shift to Tuesday, and we'll have our, our pie and praise service, a, a dessert fellowship uh, that evening. We'll tell you more about that in the weeks to come. If you would, look at Matthew chapter 11 this morning. We're going to read uh, the final 10 verses of Matthew chapter 11 and continuing our study of the book of Matthew. Last week we talked about John the Baptist and uh, he sends a couple disciples to Jesus asking if Jesus is really the Messiah. Is he really the coming one? And Jesus doesn't Uh, discourage even or seek to discourage his question or even the doubt that is in his heart, but he seeks to confirm who he is to John the Baptist. And then he turns from speaking about John the Baptist and he speaks to this group, the multitude that's around him. In fact, I want you to look at verse number 18. We'll pick up there sort of as an introduction. And he rebukes them saying, you don't look for the truth no matter who brings it to you. Verse 18. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He hath a devil. The Son of Man, or Jesus, came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of her children. Verse 20. Then began he to upbraid the cities, uh, wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Uh, Woe unto thee, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at that day of judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shalt be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom... It would have remained until this day, but I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. 
Come unto me, all ye that are all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Lord, we ask you this morning as we look at your word that you teach us. Uh, there are some um, deep in uh, some passages that even present a struggle for us sometimes in our own minds. Help us not to be like the people you describe that are disingenuous and that are insincere, uh, that are uh, inattentive to your words. Help us not simply to desire your work, but to desire your spirit, your message, and what you have for our lives. We ask that you would forgive us of complacency and uh, the desire to be left alone. But we ask and invite you to move and work in our hearts and in our spirits. Teach us what you have us have for us today. We ask that you would clear our hearts and minds. Um, turn aside guilt and shame for where we have failed you. Help us to trust in your mercy and grace. And in the clarity of that mercy, uh, may we find understanding and learning this morning. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thankful for that truth from God's Word this morning. If you would look at Matthew again, chapter number 11. And as you find your place there, again, you can look to... Your bulletin, there are some notes there for you. I'll draw your attention to the notes section. There's oh, some, some more gaps, I guess, there for you to fill in some things individually because the Lord speaks to us <coughs> personally as He speaks to us corporately. But we kind of have an outline for the passage. And then you notice that on the back, there's a review section for uh, today's sermon because of the nature of this particular passage, I think it is good to go back and study and, and think on it again. And so I hope that you'll do that sometime, maybe today as a couple or uh, even as a family. Uh, but as you look over that and we sort of review it. Now, when you're in school um, and, and there's a lesson uh, that is given and you know it, you're familiar with it, you come back to it a little bit, right? And then there's a lesson given and you're just like, what was that? And maybe you grasp it a little bit as the teacher goes through it, but you have to go back over and over and over again. And I hope that we will do that with all of God's Word, but particularly some of the places like we come to today. Because as you look at Matthew chapter 11, <clears throat> and you see there uh, how Jesus begins to continue, or how Jesus continues His teaching, there are some verses here that are difficult to wrestle with, uh, that can present us uh, with some challenges even in our own lives. Uh, they carry some weight to them, and, and it ends. Isn't it interesting? We love to quote verses 28 down through verse 30. Like, don't we like, we, some, you probably, maybe some of you probably even have this on a sign in your house, or you have it on a decoration somewhere in your house, or 
uh, in your office or you have it in your car. We, we mark this, we quote it. We, I mean, just, just hear those words again, verse 28 through 30. Oh, c- come unto me, all you that labor, and if you're heavy laden, I- I'm going to give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy, he says. Set aside your burden of life. Take my burden, yoke up with me, and, and, and we'll move together, Jesus says. He says, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and there you're going to find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Oh, those are full, rejoicing words of the rest, the invitation to rest in Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And we love those verses, yet they are part of a broader teaching. And to ignore the broader teaching and only choose the part that we like. I mean, do do we like that in any other facet of life where we just choose what we enjoy or if we're working with someone and and we all have tasks and responsibilities and, and somebody that we're working with just does what they want to do and they choose not to do anything they don't want to do? That's not a great thing. And it's the same in looking at Jesus' teaching to claim the promises of Jesus without heeding the warnings of Jesus can lead to destruction. In fact, that's exactly what we're going to see that these people do. They loved the works of Jesus. They really liked being around Jesus. They liked all the fanfare that went with Jesus' miracles. But they didn't listen to Jesus' teaching. And they did not heed His voice. I want you to look, if you would, sort of by introduction, we gave you sort of a, a quick overview of the chapter. It's sort of your second little paragraph there in your notes, and it kind of outlines uh, Matthew chapter 11. Because while we can look at this and feel, it almost has a little bit of a proverbial feel to it in the sense that it seems like it's just he's just inserting little bits of truth and wisdom. It is actually quite nicely tied together. It's a whole of Jesus' teaching. It all begins with John the Baptist sending a couple of his uh, followers and his disciples. John the Baptist, we said last week, who uh, was proclaiming, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. This is the coming one. I'm not even worthy to unlatch his shoes, let alone baptize Jesus to show that he comes and aligns himself with us. That great John the Baptist sends a message to Jesus from prison and says... Are you really the coming one, or is there someone else coming behind you? Are you the Messiah, or is it? are you pointing to the Messiah? Are you just someone else in this line of prophets? And Jesus turns and immediately does mighty miracles to confirm in John's heart and in, his, and in the followers' heart that he is the Messiah. He really is the Messiah. And we said it was almost a, a sweet uh, way that Jesus sort of does it, he lifts up John the Baptist even in his doubt. This great man of faith and follower of God that has a moment of struggle and Jesus affirms him. He does not cast that doubt back to him or on him, but he says, I will hold and I will care for them. And interestingly, verse number seven, I want you to notice, it says in Matthew 11, verse seven, as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John. Now, where is Jesus? Jesus is still around the Sea of Galilee. It says in verse 1 that he's preaching in their cities, the the cities of the apostles. Most of the apostles were from cities like Capernaum and 
Bethsaida. They were from uh, the, around the edges of the Sea of Galilee. Some of them uh, fishermen. Uh, some of them worked in other facets, but mostly from that region. And so Jesus is still in that region where he did a lot of the work of his ministry. And he gets this question from John the Baptist. He confirms who he is, and then he turns to the multitude that is watching him. So he works great miracles, and then he turns to say something. Now, it's just like anything else in life. There are certain people that as they speak or certain teachers that we've had in school that know how to gain and grasp attention. And they, they, they will maybe do something dramatic or they'll do something visual or they'll <clears throat> do something to grab or gain attention. And then they will teach the truth. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. He has gained their attention and now he wants them or he wants to gain their hearts. They have turned their eyes to him, and now he wants them to turn their spirits to him. And so last week we covered verses 7 down through verse number 20, and we know that Jesus affirms John and then teaches of the greatness of the gospel, that those who come after Jesus will be able to know God in a personal way. And then he rebukes these people for being disingenuous. That's the first two verses that we read. Look if you would in verses 18 and 19 again. And he turns to this multitude and he says to them, you are not listening. <laughs> You're not listening to us. John, the great prophet, came. You know what he told you? Repent, because God's kingdom is at hand. God's kingdom is coming. God's going to establish his kingdom. Repent of your religious uh, background of your uh, of your anchoring your heart to just religious ceremonial things repent of sin that you have craved and gone after more than you have a relationship with your god repent 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 and then look at verse 18 and you didn't listen to him because he didn't eat and drink in a normal way he lived out in the wilderness it says he ate honey and locusts. He sort of just foraged as he could. He's sort of a wild man living out in the desert, drawing large crowds unto, unto himself. It was a big spectacle. And then he pointed them to the Messiah, saying, Repent, the Messiah is coming. But you didn't listen to him. And you said, Well, <clears throat> he has a devil. There's something wrong with that man. Then in verse 19, he says, Then I came, the Son of Man, Jesus came. And I ate and drank normal. I had feasts with Matthew, with sinners and publicans. And you turn to me and say, well, he is gluttonous and a drunkard. And he says, you, you just don't listen. You, you don't heed truth no matter where it comes from. And so he rebukes their, uh, dis, their disingenuous nature and how they, they want all the stuff. They want the spectacle. They want the public ministry, but they don't want the personal effect. They want what's being done mighty and visible, but they don't want what is being done quietly in the heart. <coughs> and notice verse 20. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse number 20. Then he turns and he begins to upbraid the cities where most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. Now, this is not completely unusual. It, it, it may be a little odd this morning if I'm here speaking to you, and then all of a sudden I turn it and I just start talking about Richmond, Virginia. Like, and I just 
refer to Richmond, or I talk about Mechanicsville, or I just list different cities and towns in the area, and I just address them sort of impersonally, and I just address them as a whole. But it wouldn't have been very unfamiliar for Jesus or for those that were listening to him. In fact, it was very familiar. The prophets quite often did that. The book of Isaiah is full of warnings, not just to all of Israel, but to specific regions of Israel and even cities of Israel. And he would rebuke the people as a whole. And here he turns and he rebukes these cities. But notice why he did it. Because they repented not. I want you to look this morning first, number one, verse 20 through 24, at this warning of judgment. You have a warning of judgment. And Jesus is trying to open their eyes to help them see. And this judgment comes in the form of these three cities of Galilee, these three Galilean towns, if you would. Notice, if you want to mark the three cities that he's warning, there's in verse 21, you have two of them. Chorazin, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida, Bethsaida. So you have those two cities, Chorazin and Bethsaida. And then down in verse number 23, and thou, Capernaum. So he rebukes these three cities. Why is he doing that? Why is he making a big deal about these particular three cities? Well, most of Jesus' three years of public ministry occurred right around the Sea of Galilee. You don't have to do it now, but if you look at the map section of your Bible and you look at the Sea of Galilee, you find Capernaum labeled there. It's close to it. Um, actually, we don't know. We don't have the exact historical sites today because of the Sea of Galilee. Its, its shores have uh, shrunk and expanded and changed throughout the years. And actually, there's a couple different places where there's towns that are under the Sea of Galilee. And it's thought that Bethsaida particularly is one of those. But uh, you see that Capernaum's labeled there. These cities were around the Sea of Galilee. And as Jesus does his ministry there, he shares the good news of the kingdom of God. He drives out demons. He heals the sick. He does mighty works. And there are huge crowds. It's interesting. Bethsaida is mentioned more times in the Gospels than any other town except Jerusalem and Capernaum. Uh, Capernaum itself was Jesus' new hometown. Matthew tells us that in chapter number 9, and it kind of alludes to it in chapter 4, that Jesus sort of made that the base of his ministry. This is Jesus' hometown. It's where he has moved to. And Jesus is rebuking these three cities. Why is he doing that? Notice, it's very simple, the end of verse number 20, because they did not repent. Although Jesus was popular in the area, he was badly misunderstood. Think about it. When Jesus fed a crowd of 5,000 people, he did a miracle with five loaves and two fishes, and he's feeding them. He does this mighty miracle. There's a great spectacle. What did they try to do with Jesus? They tried to actually forcibly go and make him the king. Free bread? Free meat forever? Yes, this should be our king. And Jesus said, that's not why I'm here. I'm not here to rule over your body or your physicality or your economy. I am here to rule over your heart and your spirit. And so he works this great miracle trying to draw their hearts to him as the Messiah. And all they want is the physical aspect of what he's done. He's badly misunderstood. 
Then he says to them, I'm the bread of life. I'm the living bread. And they were disinterested. Isn't that interesting? He gives them physical bread, and they want to make him the king. And then he says, but I can give you spiritual bread that will fulfill your heart and your spirit and satisfy you in a way nothing else will. And you know what it says they did? They grumbled. They're like, but what about the real bread? They're so focused on their own lives and what they can have and what they can hold. They eventually became very proud that Jesus was there, and they ended up taking him for granted. Can you imagine being, up to this point in Matthew, imagine for a moment living in these areas. These people, the common people, have sort of been, they've had points belabored over them. They've had the Pharisees be belligerent toward them. They've had religious rulers sort of making uh, extra rules for them, kind of telling them that they're never going to amount to the things that they are. And then Jesus comes into this region and says, he, he doesn't discount them the way that the Pharisees do. In fact, Pharisees and Sadducees would often be assigned to certain regions. They would want it to be assigned to like Jerusalem and, and Bethlehem and the southern portion and where Judah was. This was sort of getting assigned out in the country. And so that when they would go, they would sort of look down on and mistreat these people that they were supposed to be serving and working for and working with. And so they mistreat him. Then Jesus comes, and who does he rebuke out of all of these people? He turns to the meek and to the lowly and to the common, and he says, you can have the kingdom of God. And then he turns to those religious rulers and says, you can't unless you repent. Your heart is far from God. And in that glorious message of the gospel, you can receive the kingdom of God regardless of who you are. You can follow Jesus in the gospel regardless of your background, what you have or what you don't have. And to this point, Jesus has been teaching and he's trying to say, set aside all these religious rituals, set aside all these works in your mind that make you think that you're all right with God when in actuality your heart is very far from God. And he's been sort of focused on those things. But after a while, he has done enough miracles and he's done enough teaching and he realizes or he looks at these people's hearts and see that they have not repented. And he turns and he's no longer just rebuking the Pharisees. And his focus is not on religious rituals or the authority or the abuse of power that they had carried over them. He looks at these common people in these cities and he says, you have a problem too. In the same way that he rebukes and he says, your legalism to the Pharisees, your legalism and your works will not save you. Repent. He turns to this group of people and he lists these three cities. He says, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. He says, just because I've been here and I've done miracles, just because you're familiar with me, just because you like having me around, just because you believe that I have power, just because you like the things that I'm doing and you're close, sort of, to my works, it doesn't save you. You need to repent. So do you see the echo in Jesus' message? He says, those of you that are trusting in your religious works, you need to repent and come to God personally. Those of you that are trusting in the fact that there's a work of God around you and, and there seems to be mighty things and you're familiar with, you're near, you're going out into the desert and listening to Jesus talk, 
You're following around in the crowd of hundreds and sometimes thousands of people to watch him work miracles. You know what you need to do? You also need to repent. His message is the same to both of them. You cannot come to God aside from a personal work in your own heart and life. It's not enough to do religious rituals and spiritual things that we think we should do. It's also not enough to be around for in our day, in our modern time. We know that Jesus isn't walking from town to town doing miracles, but it's sort of equating to around spiritual things, around a church gathering, around the church service. He says that's not enough either. It's not enough to trust in your works, and it's not enough to trust in your experience. It is only enough to trust in Jesus. That's what he's warning. Because he gives this problem of judgment on their lives. And notice, if you would, what he says. He says, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon. These were two port cities on the Mediterranean, one up northern area toward Greece, one over toward Spain, they, or to, down toward Egypt. And they talk about these two cities and, and the wickedness that was there. They're very worldly cities is how it was described. It was sort of all the evil from all over sort of would get saturated into their culture. They were known that way. But notice what Jesus says. It's going to be more tolerable for them than it is for you in the day of judgment. He says, if those people, and he would know because he's God, if those people had seen my miracles, they would have gotten on their hands and knees and repented in sackcloth and ashes. But you have not. Here's what Jesus is telling them. Think of the most wicked people in the world. And then he goes on and he even talks about Sodom in just a moment. Notice in verse number 23, he says, And you, Capernaum, I think he singles out Capernaum because he lives there, because he bases his ministry there. He says, And you, Capernaum, which are exalted to heaven, not because of anything special about them or anything physical with the city. He says, literally, you've had the Son of God living in your town. And he says, you're going to be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee or in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. That is interesting. We know that Sodom is destroyed because of the judgment of God, because of their violence and their perversion. Jesus, God actually gives them a chance to repent, 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 and they wouldn't do it. And so the actual physical city is destroyed. And here's what Jesus says, tells Capernaum. If, if I had done in Sodom what I have done in your presence, even their wicked hearts would have turned, and that city would probably still be here today. Notice in verse, as he goes on in verse number 24, But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and the day of judgment than for thee. I want you to hear what Jesus is telling these people. We need to read the Bible and read Jesus' words to hear what he's saying to us in the 21st century, but not at the expense of what he was saying in the first century to his original audience. Think, think about what they're saying. Think about who he's talking to. He lists three in their minds. Now, Sodom's been gone for a while. But, but he lists places that in their minds were associated with wickedness, godlessness, and unrepentance. That's the three things that would qualify those bad cities that he lists. They're unrepentant people. They are godless people. 
They are angry. They are violent. They are full of evil. And here's what he tells, here's what he tells the people of Capernaum, people of Chorazin, people of Bethsaida, that were around him, following him, seeing his works, eating of the bread, of the feeding of the 5,000, getting to experience all those things. He says, your heart is far colder than theirs ever was. Your heart is far is much more hard than even theirs. You think they were unrepentant? Had I done these same works in their midst, they would have fallen on their face before me, pleading for mercy in sackcloth and ashes. They would have united themselves with me. And here's what Jesus tells them. It's not enough that you desire my works. You have to listen to my words. It's not enough to want the good things of God without the relationship with God. He says it is not enough to say that you're around a spiritual place, seeing spiritual things, and you're involved in some spiritual way, kind of maybe even at a distance. He says this has to happen in your heart personally. This has to happen in your life. And he says when, I, when you look at yourself, you see the three cities where God is working, where God is blessing Hallelujah. What I see is a heart that is cold toward the message of the Savior. What I see is people that are unrepentant, that will not listen to God. So I want you to think for a moment. Now we feel, when we first read Chorizon, Bethsaida, Tyre, Sidon, Capernaum, Sodom, it doesn't hold weight with us. Okay, great, there's cities in the Middle East, in Israel, in different places. But think for a moment. Here's what he's saying to us today. You have had opportunity. That's what he's telling these three cities. You have had so much opportunity to follow me. And you won't. Who could he say that to today? If Jesus were to be here and physically in our presence speak and in our world. I want you to think for a moment. We think, well, this doesn't apply to me because the city's far away. Actually, I think it applies to us maybe more than anyone else in the world. Because here's what he's saying. You have had so much opportunity that even others have not. Tyre, you know, Sidon, Sodom, you mock those places and you point at their evil and you think you're closer to God because you don't have as much evil. But when I look at your heart and see that you are unrepentant, he says, when judgment comes, it will not be less on you because you did less evil. It will be greater on your heart and life and body because you had more opportunity. Because you had so many chances to listen. Because you had so many chances to repent. Now, does that sound like a message for our society? Let's speak for our locality, for our community, and for our country. But let's be more specific. For our church, for people that come, and, and, we, and we sit, and we listen, and we read God's Word, and we're attracted by His works, and we love answered prayers, but we don't listen to His words. Here was their problem. They wanted Jesus' stuff, but they did not want to change. 
Ultimately, that's why they rejected John the Baptist and Jesus. What John the Baptist preached, they went out and they said, whoa, this man is on fire. He is wild. He is crazy. He is booming. He is baptizing people. That is unique. That's a very spiritual thing. Let's go see what he's talking about. And then he stands up and he says, change, repent, turn. Uh, there's something off about him. A little devilish. And then Jesus comes and he does these mighty works and miracles. And they, oh, we want to go see that. Free food, sick people getting better, dead people being raised from the dead. Let's go watch it. This is amazing. And then he turns and he looks at them and says, repent, turn, and change, and follow me. And they say, mm, he's a little, he eats a little too much. He drinks a little too much. Something's not, off, something's not right about him. But what do they do? They reject the call to have their lives changed by God. That's ultimately their issue. Now, when we first look at this passage, you say, well, I don't know. I don't know if that's me. Let me ask you, Christian or not a Christian this morning, believer or not a believer, you can apply this to your life. Do we want the namesake of Christianity? Do we want spiritual things? Do we want the churchiness of church and being around other Christians without the change that God demands from our hearts and lives? He is God. He can make that demand. He is holy. He is righteous. He is pure. He is sinless. He can ask those things of our lives without issue. And yet we look to Him and say, meh, that's too much. We want the things of God without the words of God. And so he condemns them. He says that there's no repentance. But then notice number two. He doesn't stop there with a promise of ruin or judgment. He moves on and he thanks God for the promise of revelation and of relationship. Notice verse 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord, heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the, fa any man the Father save the Son, and he to whom soever the Son will reveal him. Notice what he promises here in verse 25 and verse 26. He promises to reveal himself to people, to show that he is God. And then he promises in verse 27 to give relationship to those who submit and follow him. This is the gospel. And isn't it great that he does not turn to these unrepentant people, Pharisees or the common people of Capernaum and and Bethsaida, he doesn't turn to them and say, you have not repented, and you never will, so I'm leaving. He doesn't do that. <laughs> but he says, but God can be revealed in your hearts. And some of you will trust and turn and repent, and some of you will listen. Notice in verse 25, he says, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Notice he says, because thou hast it. He, he, he thanks God for showing some people, he says, what is the truth for revealing himself, for revealing the truth of the Messiah and of Jesus. He says, even so, for it seemed 
good in thy sight. Now, some will read this verse and they'll focus on the way that he phrases those two things. You have hid it from the wise and the prudent and revealed it unto babes. Now, he is not speaking here in exclusion, but he's trying to encourage. Because in the same way that he's not saying, literally, if anyone that is wise and anyone that is prudent cannot be saved. And he is not saying that everyone, he uses the word babes there, meaning even simple-minded, young, youthful. He says, and, and everyone that is young and youthful and babes, they'll all be saved. Well, we know that that's not what he's saying. And sometimes we'll look at this and we'll almost be a little, it's almost this little bit of offense to it. Does that mean that Jesus is choosing, or God is choosing to work in some people's lives, he's not choosing to work in other people's lives? No, he is, here's what he's saying. Here's the encouragement that he's giving. You don't have to be wise and prudent and rich and mighty and have it all figured out to come to Christ for salvation. You can be young. You can be simplistic. You can be uneducated. You can be poor. Now, you can be either one, but here's what he's saying to these people that are listening around the Sea of Galilee. He says, God, I thank you that you don't have to be these things. You have no qualifiers for anyone that comes to you in repentance. You don't say that they have to be rich, they have to be mighty, they have to be powerful, they have to be important. God, you've kept that even back from some of those people. Think about what in our world, if you are rich enough, like, I mean, mega rich enough. Some numbers sometimes baffle me when you try to read how rich some people are. He says, what's actually withheld from some of those people? If you are wealthy enough, there's very little of this world that's going to be withheld from you. You can kind of get whatever you want and whatever you need. But here's what Jesus is saying. It doesn't work that way with the gospel. You can't be rich enough. You can't be smart enough. You can't be great enough. That's not how you get there. And you can't be too poor, too unintelligent, or too uneducated to get there either. Here's what he's saying. Anyone can come. But then here's the emphasis, verse 27. How do you do that? All things are delivered unto me of my Father. No man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son. This would have been scandalous for Jesus to say. The Jews, the Israel, they trusted the sovereignty of God. They knew that God is in control. He does as He wills. Verses 26 and 25, that would not have been scandalous to them. But then when He speaks in such a personal level and He says, My Father, well, one, He's claiming to be Himself the Son of God. He's saying, You are not right with God because you have not repented. You can be right with God if you come to Him. But you must come to him, verse 27, through his son. Jesus is giving the gospel. <laughs> he is saying to these people, teaching them the way of salvation, you don't have enough, you're not smart enough. That's not, none of those things, that's not what matters. What matters is, has your heart repented in turn? It doesn't matter that I've done miracles. It doesn't matter that mighty things are around you. It doesn't matter that you've seen me or that you've been in the same group as me. Has your heart turned toward me? You must repent to come to God, and you can only come through His Son. This is the message of the gospel. It's offensive to some to hear that it is only through Jesus. But then I want you to notice that number three, He gives this invitation for a promised rest. Notice how He finishes it all. 
Verse 28, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. There's soothing words after such a stark warning, right? Like he speaks to them, and he talks about not, not just uncomfortable things. He is saying, you are headed to hell. As he says, you're headed in verse uh, number 23, Capernaum, which art exalted in heaven, shall be brought down to hell. That is a fierce warning. We know the Bible teaches that all of us are going to survive death. That, that sounds, what do you mean we're all going to survive? Death will come to all of us. But we will all survive it, every one of us. Meaning our soul, our spirit lives on. There is something in us that goes past the physical grave. And we know that God promises it's going to be in one of two ways. You're going to survive death in judgment and in, uh, as an enemy or in enmity with God. Or you're going to survive death justified. You're going to survive death in Christ and have life everlasting and eventual resurrection in Him. That's what the Bible teaches. And so here he is presenting this to them, giving them such a stark warning. Look, you're headed down a one-way road to death. But if you repent and change and turn, he doesn't mean change your actions and fix your life and obey the law perfectly and do everything that you have to do. You must repent and look to, verse 27, you have to come through me. You have to come through the Son. But if you do, here is what you get. Verse 28. Your labor and your heavy laden. Who's he speaking to? Who labors a lot to impress God and to earn favor with him? Pharisees, right? Religious people. To be frank, us. We try to earn God's favor. We try to do the right things, say the right stuff. And have all of our deeds lined up in a certain way at times. And there are people, not just that try to live their life in relationship with God that way, but try to earn their salvation that way. He says, you come to me. all you." Now, when he says labor and are heavy laden, yes, if you have a hard week at work, you can find rest in Jesus. But here's what he's saying. All of you that are laboring to earn your favor in position with God. And those of you that are heavy laden. Those of you who understand that you are not right with God. And maybe you're not even trying to be. You're not laboring. You're just laden with guilt and shame. He comes to both of these people. You that are relentlessly struggling to earn God's loving hand and eye upon your life. And those of you that are cowering and hiding from Him because you know that you're guilt-ridden and shame and sin. Those of you that labor and those that are heavy laden, I can give you both rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. You shall find rest for your souls. Why does he do that? Christian, this morning, it, it, we want, in a way, we sometimes want verse 28 to end his teaching, don't we? Just come to me and you'll find rest. Oh, good, cool. We like rest. We're humans. We're created to be 
renewed by rest. It's part of God's design for us. Come to me and rest. Yes. Verse 28, verse 29. And take my yoke upon you. What's a yoke? We, we don't, most of us aren't farmers this morning. It's literally what you would straddle the back of two ox or mules or whatever it may be. You, you lay it across their backs and that's how they would plow and work the field. It would bind them together for the purpose of whatever it was, the duty that they had been given. So Jesus says, if you're laboring to impress God, or if you're shame-filled and you're running from Him, come to me and find real rest, but then attach yourself to me, because I'm calling you to serve. And this morning, the Christian, the gospel is not just to get you out of hell. It's not its only purpose. It is to bind you in relationship with your Father. It is through the Son and by the Spirit to bring you into personal, real relationship with God, your Creator. And here is Jesus. We love the message. Come, laboring one. Come, shame-filled one. Find rest in me. And when you do, I will give you purpose. I have something for you. He says, but it's different. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Yoke is talked about often in Scripture as a way to, for a believer to be connected to their God. But it's interesting, in the Old Testament, the word yoke, same word yoke there, is, is most often associated, you know what it's most often associated with is their bondage as Jewish people, as a nation. It's related to being enslaved. It's kind of how it's always pictured. He, he talks about the yoke of Babylon, the yoke of those that have taken them into exile, the yoke that is... I just can't, I, we can't get free from them. We have to have Babylon because if not, they're going to annihilate us and we're going to stop existing. That's kind of the way the Old Testament would continually talk about that yoke. It, we are bound to this. And we have a yoke of sin that binds our lives and we cannot get away from it. But Jesus calls us not just to take off that yoke of sin and live free as we want forever. He calls us to take that off and to put on service for Him, to follow Him, to be changed by His words, to obey His teaching, and to submit to Him. But in our minds, we don't want that sometimes. We pull and we try to go astray our own way. And God is telling us, you're going to be bound one way or another, but it is far better to be bound to God, your Creator, in right relationship with Him than it is to be bound to your sin. It says in verse 30, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He describes himself in verse 29, I am meek and lowly. You know, that's one of the only places that Jesus really gives an actual, like just a straight description of himself. And isn't it interesting what he chooses? I'm meek and I'm humble. And if you will bring yourself in with me, you can serve your God. I want to ask you this morning a couple of things as we finish. Have you listened to the warning of God's judgment. Are you listening to that this morning? Whether it's eternal judgment that He has promised to all who die in sin, unbelieving, not coming through Christ, or whether it is in our own lives even as Christians, we're not warning the judgment or we're not heeding the warning of God on our lives, that we are not repentant, that we do not listen to His words because we are not in relationship with Him. We ignore what he has revealed about himself. 
And I'm going to ask you this morning, lost or Christian, have you found rest in Jesus? If you are not a believer this morning, you can find rest in Him. And if you are a believer this morning, you should find rest in Him. Not in the struggle for success, that's exhausting. Not in apprehending and grabbing and getting what we think that we need and must have, that is tormenting. Not in trying to earn God's favor so that we feel that if He does good things around us, He must be happy with us, that is debilitating. But do you find real rest in your heart and your life in Jesus and Jesus alone? So how do you see that? You heed his warning and you listen to his words. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We ask you to help us today. There are different ones of us that are different places in life. You have been warning some of us about the coldness of our heart toward you. You've been warning some of us that we are not paying attention. You've been warning some of us. And we ask that you would warn us again. That you would tell us this morning if our hearts have strayed from you. As believers this morning, we want to listen to your warning. And so we ask you to show us. And we want to find rest in you. We want to set aside the relentless struggle of what life has demanded that we focus on, and we want to focus on what you teach us. This morning, Lord, I can't help but think that some of us are consumed with the labor, and others of us are just heavy laden. Our work weeks are busy, sure, our bills, our lives are tough at times, but in our hearts and in our souls, God, some of us think we can just get it all figured out and do it all right. And others of us, we know we can't. We've just shrunk away from you in shame. May both of us, may the laboring heart and the laden heart Come and find rest this morning. Help us. If you're here this morning and you say, I don't know that I'm a Christian, whether it's here at any point in our invitations, you can always come and there'll be somebody here that would take you and explain to you how you can know for sure you have a relationship with God, that your eternity is settled with Him, that you are a Christian, a believer. No one will draw attention to you. It'll be in the side of the room. We will rejoice in that with you. And if God has moved in your heart, I encourage you to do that this morning. If His Holy Spirit is pressed into your mind and your conscience that you need to follow and come to Jesus in salvation, then do so this morning, even now. And then those of us that are believers today, we're good at laboring. And we're even pretty good at being heavy laden. We're really good at trying to do the works. And we're really good at feeling bad when we don't. And Jesus is asking us to trust Him. And so we ask Him.
for helping that this morning. Stand if you would and let's sing of his love. And as we sing, whether it's here at this altar, there at your seat, let's ask the Lord to help us however he has worked in your life personally. We ask him to confirm that and move in you and follow him this morning. Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood. When the prince of life our ransom shed for us his precious blood, who his love will not remember, who can cease to sing his praise, he can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. On the mount of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide, through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love, like mighty rivers, poured incessant from above, and heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. I want to thank you for being here this morning. I pray that God has worked in your heart and in your life. I want you to think about this as we close. Does your life display a Christian who is at rest in Jesus? Do the people around you say, well, how will I know that? How will people know? Life is still tight. God never promised that life would be easy, and He never promised the absence of struggle. There are things in life that are hard. The Christian can face them much differently. I'll give you this comparison. I have worked alongside some of you at your at your house or here at a work day. You know, some of you went out. How many of you did something with leaves yesterday? Anybody? Yeah, a lot. A lot of people did leaves. All right. It's not the most like enjoyable thing. It's a struggle. It's a responsibility. But I doubt that any of you raked leaves in absolute despair. But like, I don't think anybody driving their own road would look at that person, look at you raking leaves like, man, what? That guy's life is just ruined. No. There's, some of you garden for fun. Like you, you till and pull weeds for enjoyment. <laughs> and it's labor and it's struggle, but there is a joy and a rest in that, isn't it? Isn't it interesting? Saturday's my day off. What are you going to do? Fix everything in the house. Because that's just what I want to do. There's a difference between a labor and struggle because we desire to and a labor and struggle because we have to. Because somebody makes you do something. We serve God not because He makes us, but because we can. Because through Him and through finding rest in Him, we can have His Spirit. So this week, as we struggle, is it a restful struggle for Him? Let's ask the Lord to help us in that. David Durrett, would you close us in prayer this morning?